Most of my remarks from the fifth and sixth chapter of 2 Samuel. Our last meeting, we actually ended up in the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 2. When you start reading 2 Samuel, it'd be very beneficial for you to go over to 1 Chronicles. Uh, 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel go hand in hand. And actually, 1 Chronicles gives us more details about some of the things we want to speak to you tonight than 2 Samuel does. But in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we find that David has gotten a report about the battle in which Israel and the Philistines had been involved in, one who God in his mercy and providentially had blessed David and his men not to be part of. And David got the report that Saul had died and his three sons had died, his three oldest sons, and one which, of course, was Jonathan, which was David's very, very close friend. Uh, this caused great sorrow in the life of David as uh, Jonathan, again, and he uh, are just, you know, they were a great example of what true friendship is. And Saul was the enemy of David, yet David had never really considered him to be an enemy. You'll find a couple times in the Bible where it says that God, or David said that God has delivered me from the hand of all of my enemies and also from the hand of Saul. And I first read that, I thought, well, why does he separate Saul from the expression that God had delivered me from the hand of all of my enemies? Because he never considered Saul to be an enemy. We know he certainly fit the description, didn't he, in the definition of an enemy. When somebody pursues you for 10 years uh, up the mountains, in the valleys, and dens and caves, and everywhere else, and is full intent to take your life, somehow now that just kind of fits the definition of an enemy to me. But David never considered Saul to be an enemy. And that's why he separates him out in that phrase. Now, David, with Saul dead and Jonathan dead, we find that the last barrier, you might say, between David and him taking the throne as king of Israel has been removed. And David goes to Hebron. And when he gets to Hebron, uh, we find the tribe of Judah comes and anoints David as king over Judah. That's Judah only. There's 12 tribes in Israel. Uh, Judah represents just one tribe. Uh, he's not king at this point over the other 11 tribes. It's going to take a little while for all this to come to fruition. But one of the things we notice about David here is his patience and David waiting upon the Lord. And it's important for all of us to be patient and to wait upon the Lord. I like the way Isaiah chapter 40 concludes it says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and shall mount up with wings as eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and they shall not faint. Now to keep from fainting as we walk and become too weary when we run, we need to mount up with the wings of eagles and we do that by waiting upon the Lord. That's how we have our strength renewed. Our strength even naturally gives out as the day comes to an end. You're probably not as strong naturally now if you've actually done physical work today as you were when you got up this morning. As the day goes on and you're busy and you're working, your strength begins to leave you and you become weak and then you get a good night's rest. Next day, your strength is renewed. Spiritually speaking, that's very important that we renew our strength. David here understands that God is the one who's in charge of the timing. That's why he says in the Psalms, my times are in thy hands. David doesn't rush now. David easily could see, well, 
there's nothing to stop me now from becoming the king over all Israel. But most of Israel was still, uh, you might say, sympathetic to Saul. This is going to have to take a little time. And David's waiting on the Lord for it. Now, you're going to find two characters. I'm going to summarize the rest of chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, and most of chapter 5 before we get into what we're really going to talk about tonight. You're going to find a couple of men coming to our attention by the name of Joab, uh, who's a nephew of David, and Abner, who's a cousin of Saul. Both these men were generals, you might say. Abner was Saul's right-hand man. Uh, Joab was David's right-hand man. And uh, they both uh, were in charge of, of their respective uh, armies. And when they anoint David as king in Judah, over Judah in Hebron, you're going to find where Abner is going to take the fourth son of Saul. Saul had four sons. And three of them went with him in the battle, but the youngest one, the fourth one, did not. And as you study what little bit is said about him in the scripture, I think it's pretty clear why he did not go. He was a very weak individual, weak in about every way that you can think of. But according to uh, the way they did things in that day, Saul is dead. The next person to take the throne would be Jonathan. He's dead. The next one, the next son, the next son, they're all dead. It's just one left. And so Abner, uh, he goes and makes him king. But as you read this, you'll notice it did not say that the Lord anointed him king. It was Abner that made him king over the other 11 tribes. He will only reign for about two years. Now, Abner and Joab, you're going to find where they meet together, and they're going to have kind of a little skirmish. And there's going to be 12 men on each side that's going to enter into a, into a scrimmage, basically what it was, but it got to be a little bit more than that. And all 12, 24 all together, are all slain of each other. And then it gets into a full-scale conflict, and you're going to find where Joab and his army, representing David, get the best of Abner and his army, and Abner flees. Now, Joab had two brothers, these all nephews of David, and one of these unnecessarily pursues after Abner. Abner tries to get him to turn aside and to go away, but he will not do it. Abner ends up slaying him. Joab will not forget this. Now, Abner actually had no choice in the matter. The man just would not leave him alone. He kept pursuing him. He kept trying to get him to go back, and he would not do it. So in the end, we find that he was slain. Joab then returned and go back. Now, we come to chapter 3. Notice the first verse in chapter 3. Now, there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. Now, over time, that's what was taking place. David and his house got stronger and stronger. Saul and his house got weaker and weaker. Now, why was that? Because God was with David and his household. He was not with Saul and his household. So this is how chapter 3 begins here. And you'll notice in verse 6 how Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. But then something happens and Abner is going to defect. He's going to leave uh, Saul's son, who is the king over those 11 tribes. And I think the reason he did this, he saw the handwriting on the wall. He saw they were getting weaker and weaker. And, you know, there's a philosophy, you just need to always get on the winning side. And Abner sees which is the winning side. He sees David is gaining influence. 
David's household is getting stronger and stronger. Uh, Saul's household is getting weaker and weaker. So he defects and comes over to David and uh, tells David that they will make a league with each other. He will be able to get the other 11 tribes to come on board and then David will be king over them all. Now, David agrees to do that with one condition. He must bring his first wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, with him. Otherwise, he's not going to do it. Abner agrees. And so she has been given to another man, but David still considers her to be his wife. And so she is forced to leave him, and she comes back to the house of David, and she will be very, very in the picture when we wind up tonight, Lord willing. So this is what's going on. Joab finds out about this, is not happy, and he actually uh, rebukes King David for doing it. He says, Abner, is, uh, he's got ulterior motives. Abner just wants to be in the camp. Abner just wants to spy out everything and make a plan to overthrow you. But actually, he did not. So Joab and his other brother, to get revenge, is going to slay Abner and does so. Now, David had nothing to do with it. And you're going to find where David is going to weep and lament over the death of Abner. Again, this shows the character of David. Abner uh, was the man who actually brought David. When David slew Goliath, it was Abner that brought David over to Saul. And then Abner went with Saul for 10 years trying to slay David. Remember, it was Abner that was asleep. You might, well, he was asleep. You know, when David had a second opportunity to kill Saul... And David on the hillside calls out Abner's name and rebukes him and scolds him for not doing his job as the bodyguard of Saul. Abner really had no love for David. Abner was always looking after Abner. But when Abner dies, when he's slain, you're going to find where David laments and charges the people to lament and the people to weep over the death of Abner. I want you to listen to some of the language here. In verse 32 it says, They buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a, foolish, uh, as a fool dieth? That's a question. And the implied answer is, No, he did not. Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept over him. Now, again, this is interesting to me. Abner had been an adversary. Abner had been part of the plot to try to kill David. Abner was right beside Saul all the way. He was his right-hand man. He was his bodyguard. He was his general. But yet David, being the example, and all the people are weeping over the death of Abner. Now, they bury Abner, and they're weeping. And we look at verse 35. When all the people came to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, David swore, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else till the sun be down. He says, I'm not eating anything. He says, uh, This is not a time for eating. He, he was so overcome with the emotion about the thing, he didn't have any appetite. Look down now in verse 37. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. Now that was important. When they recognized it was not David's plan, it was not David's idea. It was not, uh, uh, you know, in the heart of David to slay Abner. It was done by Joab and his brother. 
that's going to gain David influence with these other 11 tribes of Israel in the days to come. But then notice a verse here that is a well-known verse that I've seen many times uh, in church papers. When someone would die, especially a minister that was highly uh, respected and highly esteemed for a long period of time, and he died, oftentimes this would be at the top of the uh, notice. This is verse 38. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel. That's what he says about Abner. A great man and a prince has fallen this day in Israel. Am I this day weak, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me? The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. He's turning Joab and his brother over to the Lord. He said, the Lord will reward the doer of wickedness. He'll reward him in his own way, in his own time. Now, when the death of Abner reaches the ears of Saul's son that's sitting on the throne of the other 11 tribes, we notice what it said about him here in chapter 4. When Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. That pretty much describes this man. He was weak. Uh, physically. He was weak in terms of uh, his constitution, so to speak. He didn't stand up to Abner on a couple of different occasions when he could have. He was the king. Abner was not. But Abner manipulated him. And then we find in verse 2, and Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands, and the names are given here. These two men are going to go, and they're going to assassinate Saul's son. They're going to assassinate the king of the other 11 tribes. Notice down here in verse 5, And the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Banna went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbeleth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him on the fifth rib. And Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and got them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishmael unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishmael, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. Now you remember when the Amalekite brought the report from the battlefield that he slew Saul thinking that David would reward him? No doubt he was totally shocked at the reaction of David. David and, and his men did not uh, rejoice they wept. David respected Saul as God's anointed. That Amalekite lost his life. He gave testimony about his own self. He, he was a liar. He did not slay Saul. Saul slew himself. But he brought the story, this lie to David, that he did that. These people are doing the same thing. They think that David is going to be happy. David is going to be glad. David is going to rejoice and is going to reward them when they bring the head of Ishbaleth, the king of the other tribes of Israel, to him. But that's not what David's going to do. And David answered them, verse 9, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and that's the Amalekite I was talking about, thinking of wrought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person? He says, you're wicked. 
Ishbaleth might have been a weak man, but he wasn't a wicked man. In his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbaleth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner in Hebron. They, they got the same thing that the Amalekite did. Now, since he's gone, you're going to find where there's going to be a great gathering of people from the other 11 tribes to David. They're all going to come to Hebron. The news has spread. And if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, you'll find where there was 339,600 warriors, soldiers, that marched all the way down to Hebron for this, festiv- uh, this, for this occasion. And there were 1,222 tribal heads that came. I mean, we're talking about a huge, huge amount of people who now have come, and they're going to ask David now to be king over all of them. Now, the time has finally come. David has known for a long time that he's supposed to be the king of Israel, that God has set him apart to be the king of Israel. It's taken over 10 years for this to be, uh, this to be realized, but this is God's timing. Again, David says, my hands, or the, my, uh, my, my hands are in thy times. In thy hand, times are my hands, he's saying. His life was in the hands of God, in the times of God. So now it's, it's come to time when that's going to happen. Now, David was 30 years old when he began to reign over Hebron. He's going to reign in Hebron for seven years and six months, and 33 years he will reign over the other 11 tribes. Total, he will reign for 40 years. He began reigning at 30. How old was the Lord Jesus Christ when he began his ministry? He began his ministry at the age of 30. The Lord Jesus Christ had been a king from the time he was born. Remember, the wise men came. What did the wise men say? The wise men said, we have come to see him who is king of Israel, the king of the Jews. Well, the reason he was born king of the Jews, as I have said many times, is because he was king before he was ever born. He'd always been king. But now he comes to this world, he's born a king, he'll live a king, but there was not a manifestation of him being a king until he began his ministry at the age of 30. And the same thing here with David. David now is king over all 12 tribes in Israel. It's it's a wonderful time. Notice verse 2. Also in time past when Saul was king over us, thou was he that led us out and brought us into Israel. said, even when Saul was alive and he was king, it was you that led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said unto thee, thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old and began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. Now, David wants to relocate the capital. David had been reigning in Judah. Ishbaleth had been reigning in another location. David wants to make Jerusalem the capital. And so there's a place called Mount Zion. It was right there in the mountainous area where they were at. And the Jebusites occupied Mount Zion. And they thought it was so fortified that nobody could possibly take it. So David just went and David took it. <laughs> By the help of God and the power of God, David took it. And now that's where Jerusalem is. And from a, uh, to, you know, from a, just from the standpoint of the topography, so to speak, 
Jerusalem is situated at the top of the mountains. There's valleys and mountains on three sides, on the south, the east, and the west. And the only vulnerable side that there is is from the north, and that's the only direction they had to be concerned about, and they watched that day and night. Jerusalem now is going to be the place of worship. Jerusalem has become one of the most important cities in all of history. And here's, uh, you know, some of the beginnings as to why. So here's the new capital. Here's where David will reign uh, over Israel for 40 years. Notice in verse 12. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Now, one of the things that David did not do good, and it's going to spell it out in verse 13. And David took in more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron, and there was born yet sons and daughters born to David. And then he's going to give some of the names of them here. One of the requirements that God gave in the book of Deuteronomy concerning future king of Israel, they were not to multiply gold, they were not to multiply horses, and they were not to multiply wives. If David had one real weakness in his life, it was women. And his son Solomon followed right in his footsteps. And it's, if, when you study their lives, you'll see this turned out to be uh, really disastrous for both of them. So this is inserted here for our information, obviously. But now I want to take a look down at verse 17. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it and went down to the hold. Just couldn't get rid of those Philistines. <laughs> Everywhere you turn, there's Philistines. David fought Philistines before he fought Goliath. Then he fought Goliath and slew him. David was always fighting Philistines. That wasn't the only ones he fought. He fought the Amalekites. He fought other nations as well. But the Philistines just kept popping up like fire ants do. If you've ever had any experience with fire ants, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, we don't have them here, but they got them in Florida, and they got them in South Georgia, and they got them in Alabama, and they'll just pop up in all kinds of places in the yard, and if you uh, uh, want to know the seriousness of it, you just stand on a pile of fire ants without knowing it, in a few minutes you'll understand what I'm talking about. I remember my father came down to see us one time there in Florida, and I looked out the kitchen window, and I saw my daddy undoing his belt and, and actually lowering his pants down. He's got fire ants all up his legs, and he didn't care who saw what. He had to come out of them pants. And so that's the way the Philistines were. Just like those fire ants. You couldn't get rid of them. I mean, you, you can put stuff on a, a mound of them, and that'll go away, and they just pop up over here. You know, the best thing to do is just have to try to live with them you know, get along with them the best you can. <laughs> Try to keep them away from the doorsteps and all the walkways, that kind of thing, because uh, you're just not going to win the battle. So David's always fighting these Philistines. Now, the Philistines are the aggressors here. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephraim. Now, they're preparing themselves for battle, and David's preparing himself for the battle, but let's notice the difference. Verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines without deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. Before David made a move, before David took a step, he prayed to the Lord. He just asked the Lord what he should do. That's the difference between David and Saul. There was a time when Saul was little in his own sight. But he grew up in his own self. 
When he became king, Saul believed that partial obedience was as good as full obedience. He would get the commandment of God and go out and do most of it, but he always wanted to make some changes to it. Always wanted to add his own personal taste to it. And that's one of the things that caused God to take the kingdom away from Saul. If you go read 1 Samuel 15, you'll understand that. Went out to fight the Malachites. God told him to destroy everything. He didn't do it. He brought back the king of the Malachites, brought back the very best of the oxen and the sheep, etc. And God was displeased. He says, the kingdom should be taken away from you and given to a man after my own heart, to a neighbor of thine. Of course, talking about David. David is the king, but he recognizes there's a king above him. David is not going to make one decision. He's not going to take one step, make one move, till he inquires of the Lord. And this expression, David inquired of the Lord, is pretty exclusive for David. You don't find that said just like that about any other person. But it's said a number of times about David. So God gave him a, a direct answer. He says, go, I'll naturally live with the Philistines in thine hand. And David went out, and sure enough he did. But then it's coming down to verse 22. And the Philistines came up again. And spread themselves in the valley of Riphim. Just like the fire ants. (laughs) Uh, He he defeats them. And lo and behold, here they come again. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, now this is the Lord's answer. Thou shalt not go up. Different answer you got the first time. Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them. It means to go around and to encircle them. And come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself, that is, thou shalt move thyself. For then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. Why do it different the second time? I don't know. (laughs) God is sovereign. Uh, God, you know, uh, is not restricted uh, or hindered anything else in anything that he does. But he's going to fight the Philistines back to back two times here. First time he just goes out and smites them. The second time said, no, you're not going to do it the same way the second time. He says, you encircle them. And then you wait till you hear the sound of the movement at the top of the mulberry trees. And then when you hear that, then he says, I'll go before them and smite them. Notice how that's said in the last part of verse 24. For then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord had commanded him and smote the Philistines from Geba until thou come to Gazar. Now, who smote the Philistines? Did the Lord smite them or did David smite them? Verse 24 says the Lord smote them. Verse 25 says that David smote them. Well, both are correct. When you do what God tells you to do, he enables you to be victorious over something. It's the Lord who's given you the victory, but it's you that follow the instructions. Just like when God told Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, he says, Behold, see, I have given you the city of Jericho and the king and the men of valor. The battle had not even been fought. They hadn't engaged in battle, but yet the Lord's already guaranteeing victory. He's already given the results ahead of time because he knows what he's going to do. And Joshua followed the instructions. Sure enough, they conquered the city of Jericho. Now let's go into chapter 6 here. But before I do, uh, what does this lesson teach us tonight that I just went over in the last part of chapter 5? It, it brings to light to me a verse that I mentioned from time to time, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not upon your own understanding. Here's a perfect example. 
David did not lean upon his own understanding. When they came out the second time, David very well could have said, well, I know what to do. The Lord told me to go out before and smite him, and I did, and I, I won the battle. I'll just go out and do it again. No, before he went out the second time, he inquired again. And the Lord gave him different instructions this time. The result was the same, but the plan was different. Now, chapter 6 opens up and says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and with all the people that were with him from Baalai of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. Now David has relocated the capital. Jerusalem is the capital. But the ark of the covenant has been forgotten for a long time. The ark of the covenant was one of the most important things in Israel's, Israel's history. It had been in the household of Abedinadab, for about 65 to 70 years at this point. And when you read 1 Chronicles, you'll find where Israel did not inquire about it. So the religion of the Israelites, their spirituality, has been greatly diminished during this period of time. And David wants it restored. David wants a revival. So David wants to go bring the Ark of the Covenant up. Where did we first read of this? Exodus chapter 25, when God gave Moses instructions about the tabernacle, the furniture of the tabernacle, if you'd walk into the tabernacle, you would pass every article of furniture that there was in there until, uh, until you come to the last piece, which is the Ark of the Covenant. When God told them to build it, he started off with the Ark of the Covenant and worked his way out. So the Ark of the Covenant had three pieces of furniture in it. It represented the presence of God, the power of God, and gave Israel this identity. It had the tables of the law that represented God's precepts and commandments. It had Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron was the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. And it had the golden pot of manna, which represented God's providential blessings. A pot of golden manna is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life. How that God would take care of them and provide for them. That's all right there in the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant is a lid. That lid is God's, it's called the mercy seat. And that was God's seat. When God came down from heaven to meet with the high priest and the children of Israel, that was his seat. It wasn't the priest's seat, that was his seat. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went in and he sprinkled blood upon that mercy seat seven times the number of perfection and completion. And all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. David wants to bring that ark to Jerusalem. Good idea. They're happy about it. David instructs those 30,000 men and they go down to get it. Now, I want you to remember something. Uh, the household of Abinadab was not of Aaron. It was not of the tribe of Levi. The Lord had given clear instructions how to handle that Ark of the Covenant. He had given clear instructions in his law how it was to be transported from point A to point B. Only the Levites were to handle it. Only the Levites were to carry it. So they violate God's instructions right off the bat. Now they, and, you know, so I appreciate zeal, you know, uh, we could all use more zeal in our lives, right? I want to be more zealous. I want to see every one of you be more zealous. I want our church collectively to be more zealous, but you got to have knowledge and understanding to go right along with it. I've seen people have plenty of zeal with no understanding, and I've seen people with plenty of understanding and absolutely no zeal. So it's, it's a wonderful combination to have understanding, knowledge, and zeal at the same time. Now they got the enthusiasm right now. But let's notice what they did. They set the ark of God upon a new cart. Well, there, there's, there's the second mistake. 
That's exactly how the Philistines, you remember the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant at one point, and they returned it, and they returned it on a cart. They borrowed from the Philistines. Now, the Lord's church should be lending and not borrowing. There's nothing outside the Lord's church that we need. We don't need to borrow anything from anybody. Everything we got in the house of God, we got it according to God's directions and God's instructions. They borrowed it. And he brought it out of the house of Bedanadab that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahu, the sons of Bedanadab, drove the new cart. They're not in the tribe of Levi. Now they brought it out, etc. We come on over here, and David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and psalteries, on the timbrels and on cornets, on cymbals. I mean, this is a, a wonderful time. They're having a, a festive time. Everything's going great until the oxen stumble. Until the oxen who are carrying the, pulling the cart with the Ark of the Covenant, the oxen stumble. What happens? When they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Now, when you first read that, you might think, that's just, that's just severe. And it was. But if there's one lesson in all the Bible that teaches me of the importance of doing God's, doing doing what God would have us to do, the way God would have us to do it is right here. Achan, remember Achan? How he was smitten because he violated God's word when they went up to Ai and won the victory and God told them to bring nothing back and they brought the, the golden wedge and the Babylonian garments and one thing and another. He and his whole family were, were slain because of that. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? Both of them died on the spot when they lied to the Holy Ghost. And here you're going to find where Uzzah, I'm sure with good intentions, put his hand to the ark, which was a violation of God's word, and God smote him dead. Now this shook the people up. All, you know, it went from jubilation <laughs> to a picture of catastrophe. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him in the city of David, but David carried aside into the house of Obededom the Gittite, and Obededom is a Levite. Okay, he's a Levite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obededom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obededom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obadiah and all that pertaineth to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obadiah into the city of David with gladness. Now, I'm going to read over here in the book of 1 Chronicles the counterpart to this. It gives a little bit more detail. In chapter 15, and David, verse 1, And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it for a tent. Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. <laughs> Remember, who carried it before? It wasn't Levites. God's word said Levites are to carry it. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. 
Now let's come down to verse 13. I think it's one of the most important verses in the Bible, really. For because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us because we sought him not after the due order. Let me tell you how God told them to carry the ark. Only the Levites carry it. They carry it with uh, staves or sticks between. The Ark of the Covenant had a golden ring on each corner. And they were to put a stave through both rings going this way. And then they were to carry it on their shoulders from point A to point B. They were not to touch it and they were not to look inside of it. David says this time the Levites are going to carry it. He says the first time we didn't do it after the due order. That's why Uzzah was struck dead. This time they are. So the priest and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thrown as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now I have thought before this. If I'd have been one of those Levites chosen to carry the ark, before I got there I'd have got the book of Deuteronomy out. I mean, I'd have searched the book of Deuteronomy from A to Z. I'd have wanted to make sure all my I's were dotted and all my T's were crossed. Uh, they already knew what happened the first time. When they didn't do it God's way, disaster. I'm telling you, I'd have been 100%. I'd have read that book three or four times from cover to cover. <laughs> what about you? I wouldn't have took any chance, would you? And this time it worked. And this time it worked. Now, Let's go back to 2 Samuel here as we begin to draw this toward a conclusion. So David and all his house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. I mean, now they are praising God. They're, they're shouting and they're, they're, the, the, they're singing and the trumpeters are blowing with the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. See, she was the daughter of a king. She was the daughter of Saul. She's also the wife of a king. She's the, king of, she's the wife of King David. The daughter of a king, the wife of a king. But she's got a little bit of pride in her life. And she's not sharing in David's joy. You see, she's a Debbie Downer, if you want to put it plain. There's always a Debbie Downer around, right? When you're just as happy as you can be and you're just rejoicing in different things, you can always expect a Johnny Raincloud or a Debbie Downer to come on the scene. But I want you to notice David is not going to allow her to steal his joy. Now, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle and the David pitched for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings for the Lord. David is, is praising God. They're blowing the trumpets and they're offering offerings and peace offerings. They're worshiping God. And as soon as David made an end of offering burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He's blessing people. And he dealt among the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as the women, as men, to everyone a cake of bread, a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Everybody's happy. It's a great time. It's a wonderful time. The Ark of the Covenant has returned to its proper place. It now once again represents the identity of Israel. Once again, it represents the presence of God and the power of God. And everybody is shouting and they're playing and they're doing the best they can to honor God. At that particular time, everybody's just shouting. 
Oh, what a, what a meeting. What a glorious meeting this must have been. I wish I could have been there, <laughs> in a sense. You know what I mean? To be in that kind of atmosphere where people are just jubilant. All but his wife, Michael. Kind of reminds me of the prodigal son. Remember that? Remember when the prodigal son came home? See, the Ark of the Covenant has come home. Remember when the prodigal son came home? The father was happy, wasn't he? He said, kill the fatty cat. Put my ring upon his finger. Put my uh, robe around his shoulders. Put my shoes upon his feet. He says, this my son that once was dead is now alive. This my son. That shows you there how you can be dead and alive in different ways. He once was lost and now he's found. But there's somebody not happy about it. The older brother. Everybody's having a good time but the older brother. You ever been around a gathering of people and everybody's having a good time? You look over there and there's a sad sack sitting over there for some reason. Everybody's happy but him. Everybody's happy but the, but the brother. Everybody's happy but David's wife. Verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today! who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. She's criticizing him. She's putting him down. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. <laughs> you know, Job's wife, Remember Job's wife? Job said, would you, would you curse God today? And he says, that speaks as one of the foolish women. Shall we not receive the hand of the Lord evil as, as well as anybody else? Are we, we special? Are we separate and apart and everything else? No, we're not. David says, regardless of what you're saying, I'm doing the right thing. And I'm playing before the Lord and I'm not going to stop. <laughs> David rebuked her. In verse 22, and I will yet be more vile than dust. If you think you saw me dancing and shouting before, you just wait till you see me again. I'll be based in mine own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. And notice the last verse. Therefore, Michael, Michael the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. I wonder why that's there. You know, Jonathan, Saul's son, David's good friend, wanted very much to be next to David when David was going to be king. Jonathan knew David was going to replace his father as king, and he wanted to be right there beside him, but the Lord didn't allow that. Jonathan died on the battlefield. If David had a child by her, that child would have had rights as David's Son, let's say he had a son to her. God is not going to allow, God was not going to allow the household of Saul to be in connection with the household of David. So therefore, Jonathan dies on the battlefield and Michael is barren and has no children. Now, we got a lot to shout about. We got a lot to praise God about. <laughs> on Sunday night, down there after the service, there was a lady there that was not primitive Baptist. She came with uh, Brother Josh Arnold's mother. I think I told you Sunday his mother had three people invited and they were all there. 
And when the service was over, she clapped. <laughs> when I got through preaching, she clapped. <laughs> That's a little unusual in the old Baptist uh, assembly, I'll say that. But she clapped. And, and she was clapping kind of like this, I was told, all through the meeting. And then when I got through, she gave a real loud clap. <laughs> I'll never forget Karen's mother. When it was down at Little Union, we on a Sunday night service, and after the service was over, we had, I thought, a really good meeting. I said, anybody got anything to say? And her mother was sitting kind of about where Brother Larry is right here. Her mother just stood up. She said, I serve a risen Savior. And she started singing. <laughs> she started singing that hymn. Uh, she, she felt it. She wanted to express herself. And after it was over, a bunch of people said, we ought to do more like that. <laughs> and perhaps we should. David got it right the second time. He got it wrong the first time, resulting in the death of Uzzah. He got it right the second time. And the Lord blessed. The ark found its way home. And David and all the people praised God and shouted and worshiped. And everybody was happy except for Michael. <laughs> she died barren. She had no joy. Uh, thank you very much again for your prayer.